Buddha's first teaching after his enlightenment was called the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, the turning of the wheel of the law. And it's a wheel that rolled all across Asia, rolled across Europe, it somehow rolled across the ocean to Barry, Massachusetts. It's quite amazing, 2,500 years, this wheel of the Dharma turning. What it means is the wheel of awakening, namely the five spiritual faculties, the teachings of the five spiritual faculties of faith, of energy, of mindfulness, of concentration, of wisdom. When the Buddha turned this wheel in his first discourse, after his enlightenment, he began his teaching and his explanation of how each one of us can cultivate and mature and ripen these five faculties within ourselves. The first of them in Pali is called sadha. And it's usually translated as faith or devotion or confidence or trust. And literally it means to place one's heart on something. And I think what's important for us in understanding this particular spiritual faculty and what makes it the foundation for all of the others is precisely that it engages our heart in our spiritual practice on the spiritual journey. Faith or devotion is the mind or heart that is really open to something greater than our limited ego self, our ego concerns or desires. It's faith or devotion or trust which helps to open us to those things which are greater than ourselves. Now faith or devotion is both our initial inspiration to begin practice It's why we begin, and it's also what sustains our practice through all the ups and downs which inevitably come. All of us here already have very strong seeds or paramis of sata, of faith. It's what makes it possible for us to undertake this practice. But what's interesting is that For many people, for many of us here, it doesn't seem so extraordinary. You know, it doesn't necessarily seem like we have really strong roots in faith. And for some people, it may even feel that the faith is quite shaky or tenuous. But from a worldly perspective, each one of us has incredibly strong faith or you wouldn't be here. Did you ever try explaining to somebody who had never been on a retreat exactly what you were going to do for three months? I mean, from a worldly perspective, it's pretty strange. You know, sit in silence, not speak to anybody, not look at anybody, 
walk in slow motion, sit. There's something inside, you know, of our hearts which is motivating us to take this quite big step away from everything the world values and thinks is important. In the beginning, our faith or confidence can be inspired by a wide range of circumstances. Now, what is it that kind of initially connects us with the possibility? Perhaps it's inspired by a person, you know, either someone we know personally or you know, a great historical figure like the Buddha. In either case, we feel or intuit certain qualities in them that inspire us, like love or compassion or kindness or selflessness or equanimity. It's as if we get the scent, the aroma of enlightenment, you know, from being with or reading about these people. And so feeling or intuiting these qualities in others, it becomes the source of our own aspiration. Yes, maybe this is possible to do. This last summer, Sharon and I were at a Buddhist Christian conference at Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky, which is where Thomas Merton had lived. And they were hosting this uh, quite big conference. The Dalai Lama uh, attended. And it was really wonderful just to be with him uh, in you know, relatively close contact. And just watching him, I felt like I was... Uh, I felt like I was just imprinting his energy you know, which is so wonderful because he embodies so much uh, kindness and compassion and wisdom and also this amazing childlike innocence. The, the Trappist monks were taking him on a tour of the abbey uh, and evidently there's as livelihood there, they both make cheese and also these uh, fruitcakes, I guess holiday fruitcakes. And so the monks were taking him around, you know, to see their their workplace, and they kept they kept offering him cheese, you know. And so later on in the uh, conference, he was telling all the participants about the tour, and he kept saying with this really cute little giggle, they kept offering me cheese and I only wanted some fruitcake. (laughs) And he said it about four or five times, how much he wanted the fruitcake and they only kept offering him cheese. And he was laughing. It's just so wonderful to see somebody so free in themselves and coming... Uh, from such a loving, easy place, uh, it really becomes the the source of great faith because we say, yeah, maybe that's possible. You know, maybe those qualities you know, that he embodies so beautifully actually can be uh, cultivated. In a more classical vein, uh, there's a book from the... Uh, 
Pali Canon. It's called The Questions of King Melinda. Um, Melinda was a king. He's actually a Greek king in what's uh, left over from the conquest of Alexander the Great in Central Asia. And uh, Nagasena was this enlightened monk. And there's these two volumes of books of questions that King Melinda is asking Nagasena. And it's it's about many of the you know naughty Buddhist questions. But they have one image in it uh, describing this quality of catching faith. And of course, remember, this is a very agrarian society, so a lot of the images are from that uh, time and place. The little story is just of a group of people gathering or together on the bank of a flooding stream. You know, and the water's flooding, and in some way they're in danger. And then someone comes along, some woman or some man who's quite wise and strong, and they assess the situation, and they just are able to kind of take a running leap over the stream to the other shore in safety. And the story goes on that other people seeing this, seeing that it's possible, gather up their own courage, their own resolve, and also jump across the stream. Of course, the stream here is symbolic or representative uh, of samsara, of our life in samsara. That's what this shore is. You know, it's our life in ignorance. It's our life lost in the dream or in the enchantment of the distracted mind, which you see how much of the time we live in that. And the other shore is awakening. The other shore is coming out of the ignorance, coming out of the dream of delusion. And so the metaphor really is, and I think we have all tasted this to some extent, that when we see somebody who has actually made that leap, the leap into awakening, we say, yes, this this might also be possible for me. There's another way that faith or confidence or devotion is strengthened or arises. And that is our awareness of an openness to the suffering in our own lives and in the lives of others. Because often when we connect with suffering in the world and in ourselves, it, it, it can inspire us to practice, to understand. You know, really investigating in ourselves the nature of the suffering, the cause of the suffering. When we do this, when we use the difficulties in our lives as an inspiration for practice, for understanding, then it opens us more fully, more deeply to feelings of compassion, you know, of loving kindness for the suffering that we all share in one way or another. The openness, investigation of suffering connects us to the law of karma, to the law of cause and effect. We really begin to see or to explore what are the causes of this suffering 
it helps to foster a certain renunciation of addictive pleasures, you know, for something that is much more precious. So the awareness of suffering, the opening to it, can become the source of great faith, great confidence in our lives, because we see that we're connecting with something real. Faith and confidence and devotion can also come just from a great love of understanding, a love of wisdom. Now, sometimes I think we uh, lose connection with the true meaning of philosophy. The word means love of wisdom. Perhaps for some of us that's a very strong... um, wellspring of faith and devotion in our lives. Can we actually understand in the deepest way, in the most fundamental and transforming way, what is true? There's a great moment that happens in each one of our lives when there's the awakening of faith as a genuine spiritual faculty. And that's the moment when we go from an intellectual appreciation of the Dharma, which many people have, to the realization that we ourselves can actually do this, we can practice this, we can accomplish this. That's a great moment. That's actually bringing it from the head to the heart. We were no longer thinking, yeah, that sounds good, or this is a good idea. But when we connect deeply with this faith, with this confidence, I can do this. It may take a while, but I can do it. <laughs> it's, that, it's that transformation that comes from seeing, from understanding deeply that awakening is possible. I had a little experience of this uh, when I was in the Peace Corps after college. I was in Thailand, in Bangkok, teaching English, and going to uh, some discussion groups at the temple. There were some Westerners who had been monks and leading Dharma discussion groups in English. And as mentioned sometimes before, I had just been studying philosophy at college and went there with all my questions, very intellectual, you know, about just exploring, you know, the, the philosophical differences. The first time I went to a monastery, I went with a copy of Spinoza in hand <laughs> and I was you know, going to debate the monks. So after going and asking many, many questions and it really got bad, got really bad. People stopped coming to these groups because I was going. (laughs) You know, there's always one in a group like that. (laughs) Sometimes I think I'm still uh, receiving the karmic consequences of that. (laughs) Some mornings. (laughs) Anyway, finally one monk... (laughs) 
one monk said, "Why don't you, why don't you stop meditating?" You know, I think he just wanted to, to keep me quiet. <laughs> so anyway, I get all this paraphernalia together, you know, and sitting. And it was the first time I. This was a very exotic thing in those days. Nobody I knew was meditating. So I get it all together, and then I set my alarm clock for five minutes. <laughs> so it wasn't too long. But it was amazing. Something actually happened in that five minutes. And it wasn't that there was any great, you know, experience. But what happened was that in those very first few minutes, just in watching the breath, and that's all I was doing, I saw that there was a way to actually explore the whole inner world of experience. And that felt to me incredible. You know, because my whole life had been just a looking out. And just in those first few minutes, it was like turning around in place. I hadn't actually gone anywhere, but it was a turning around in place. And now was that first glimpse. Something is possible here. You know, there is a way to understand ourselves. So that was quite amazing. And I think we've all had that experience, that turning. And that's the source of a very great faith in our lives. As we practice, and as we've come to this place of seeing that, yes, we can actually do this ourselves, and as we practice and cultivate and develop, the factor, the faculty of devotion and confidence, of course, is strengthened by our direct experience. And then faith is not only coming from a belief or an inspiration that comes from other people, but it's coming from our own inner knowing. You know, we know what's true from our own experience. This faith or confidence in this way, experientially, in the actuality of each moment's experience moment after moment. We see what is there for ourselves. There's no intermediary. Now, what is a thought? What is a sensation? What is an emotion? We're exploring it not abstractly, not intellectually. We're really seeing from this inner looking, we are seeing for ourselves the nature of all of these elements of the mind and body. And it's quite amazing, as you know, you know, to, to have these tastes of direct experience free from the proliferation of concepts or the proliferation of preconceptions about what it is that's happening. What is the nature of our experience when we're awake, when we're aware? What's the nature of our experience when we're lost, when we're distracted? when we're in the dream. We can see this very directly. From the most simple, uncontrived, unfabricated awareness comes this immediacy of knowing. In a moment of hearing, We're just sitting, a sound arises and is being known. 
in that moment, in that immediacy of knowing, is there any doubt? No, because it's just there in all its simplicity. There's a moment of hearing. We're in that moment. Or in a breath, or in a sensation. We experience this great sense of presence. This immediacy of knowing. And really see it right now. Now, Right with a breath, just this breath or awareness of the body. The immediacy of knowing, which is arising in every moment, is pointing directly to the quality of innate wakefulness that is present. We learn to recognize this, we learn to trust it, we learn to have faith, to have confidence in this nature of innate wakefulness. Now we become familiar with it, we learn to rest in it. It's expressed, uh, most of you are probably familiar with uh, the great Tibetan yogi Milarepa, you know, who lived for many years in caves in the Himalayas. And he wrote these, what are called the 100,000 songs of Milarepa, because he would teach the Dharma in song. Well, this is the prose version. Uh, this, this particular one is called the Buddha Within. Now, behold and search your unborn mind. Seek not for satisfaction in samsara. I attain all my knowledge through observing the mind within. Thus all my thoughts become the teachings of Dharma. And apparent phenomena are all the books one needs. Those who realize the nature of their own mind know that the mind itself is wisdom awareness and no longer makes the mistake of searching for Buddha from other sources. In fact, Buddha cannot be found by searching. So contemplate your own mind. This is the highest teaching one can practice. Now, it's expressed in so many different ways. That's all a question of just looking within at the very nature of our own minds, our own experience. It's not something that we have to get or create or find. It's just to recognize what is already here. So this is one expression or manifestation of faith that trust in the nature of awareness that comes from the experience of the immediacy of knowing moment after moment. Simple things, the knowing of a breath, of a sound, of a thought, just of our experience unfolding. We also develop a faith not only in this nature of awareness, but also in the direction of our whole life's journey. 
Now, and this is a journey not in time and not in space, but it's really a journey of our own inner understanding. We experience the growing possibility of awakening. Why? Because we actually are awake more and more often. And so in this we develop a very strong sense of path because we see the development or the maturation or the ripening or the fulfillment of awakening in our lives. And it's this powerful combination of presence, presence in the innate wakefulness of mind, the combination of presence and path, the sense of the unfolding into enlightenment, into Buddhahood, into awakening. It's this combination of presence and path that gives a context and it gives a meaning to our lives. Sometimes people think there's a contradiction between being present and a sense of path or goal. But not only is there not a contradiction, it actually, this combination actually informs our most ordinary activities. Just as a very simple example, but there are countless ones. When you get up at the end of a sitting, where are you going? If you have no sense of destination, it might be a little chaotic. You stand up. Do I go out this door, go out that door? If you have no idea where you're going, what the destination is, it's really impossible to live one's life. We can be very present in the standing, in the moving step by step, and still have a very clear sense of goal, of destination, and take the appropriate steps in that direction. And that's the path of practice. We're present, and yet we have an understanding of where the path is leading. And this points to the amazing power of intention. Now, because intention is not only important for our physical destination, but it's also important with respect to our karmic destinations. The quality of devotion in faith, this heart quality, It helps to keep us grounded in the moment, just in the moment's experience, and at the same time opens opens us, keeps us open to what is yet unknown. Keeps us open to the unfolding mysteries of the Dharma. Helps us not get stuck in any particular place along the way. So many times in my practice, uh, countless times, I would have some experience and think, this is it. I got it now. You know, it would be some insight or some perspective or some way of understanding. And then, oh, my practice is going to be like this from now on. 
And of course it never is. And the wheel turns a few more times and there's a new understanding, a new perspective, often quite unexpected. It's the quality of faith, it's the quality of devotion which keeps us from the arrogance of thinking we know. We can open to the experience in the moment, have whatever insight it offers, and stay open to the mystery. Stay open to what's unknown. It's really in this journey of deepening understanding that gives some clarity and some meaning to the circularity of our lives. I'm sure you've been struck often about sort of just the endless wheel of our lives. We get up in the morning and we have breakfast and we do some kind of work or other. And we stop work and we eat and we rest or we play in one way or another. And we go to sleep and we get up and we work. And day after day, you know, in one form or another, we keep doing the same thing over and over again. What's the point of it? <laughs> you know, sometimes, uh, if you just consider the, the mass of humanity and other life forms, you know, on this planet, on this very small planet, which itself seems, often seems heading towards disaster, and if not that, certainly for each one of us, you know, heading towards death, that this is, this is the reality of taking birth. One small planet, you know, in one little solar system, in a very far off corner of the galaxy, with hundreds of billions of galaxies. This is just something Stephen Mitchell wrote. He called it the sense of proportion. He said, there are at least 100 billion galaxies in the universe. I think now, actually, they've recognized a lot more. And each galaxy contains at least 100 billion stars. Just think for a moment, if you can imagine <laughs> what 100 billion galaxies means, each with 100 billion stars. Okay. And each star illuminates an uncounted number of planets, each of which may support inconceivable forms of life. From most points of view, the green earth is smaller than an electron. All this is happening within your mind. From one perspective, it is totally meaningless. You know, our little daily machinations, you know, which seem just totally circular and not going anyplace. And yet from another perspective, when we realize that in some very profound way, it's all contained within the mind, then the journey of understanding this mind, that's what gives the meaning to our lives. That's where the meaning is to be found. When there is very strong faith 
or devotion or confidence to this process of deepening wisdom and deepening compassion, then every part of our lives, every activity in our lives takes on a meaning. In every situation, in every moment, are we awake? Or are we asleep? Are we in the dream? Are we present or not? In the simplest things, with a movement, with a breath, in hearing a sound, in going for food, are we awake or not? Are we present or not? Is there suffering? What is its cause? Where is its end? Now, these are not theoretical questions. These are not questions for some philosophy exam. This is our life. This is the juice of our lives, the juice of our practice. This heart quality of faith or devotion is an actual power in our lives. It's not an abstraction. It's it's a real power. And it's likened to a magical gem that when placed in a water filled with impurities, the power of the gem is that it will settle. It'll cause all the impurities in the water to settle to the bottom so the water becomes clear and purified. Faith in the possibility of awakening. Confidence in the immediacy of each moment's experience. Trust in the direction of our lives, the unfolding of understanding. This quality, these qualities of faith and trust, settle doubt, settle confusion, settle uncertainty, settle agitation. It's these qualities of faith that create an inner environment of stillness, of clarity, of peace. In the Abhidharma, which as you know is the Buddhist psychology, faith along with all of the other wholesome factors, uh, they're called the beautiful qualities because there is a beauty in the mind when they're present. We can see and recognize this beauty both in others and in ourselves, in our own minds. Faith is expressed in so many different ways, the the beautiful aspect of it. One image which is deeply imprinted in my mind was from the time that Deepama, our teacher who lived in Calcutta, um, when she was here, uh, she was so amazing. She also just was this incredible embodiment of wisdom and of love. But she would come into the hall and she would just uh, kneel here and bow to the Buddha. And it was the most amazing thing to watch her bow. Because it was like 
love bowing to love, you know, or emptiness bowing to emptiness. And to see the expression in such a uncontrived and completely unselfconscious way, you know, of just of that quality of devotion. There's a tremendous beauty to it. You know, when I come in and just I pay respects to the Buddha, sometimes people, especially from the West, it's it's not a Western custom really, or part of our Western culture. And for some people, it sort of reeks of idol worship. Or you know, what are you doing? <laughs> it's just a statue up there. I think it's important to kind of create a, a context of understanding that for me anyway, it's, when I do that, I really imagine or hold in my heart mind as if I'm in the presence of the Buddha, you know, and everything that the Buddha embodies and represents. And it's a way of coming out of that small sense of self. You know, it's really a way of connecting with something bigger, something larger, something more profound. There's also a quality of faith and devotion, not only to the Buddha, but to the Dharma itself. You know, when, when we can actually surrender to the Dharma. And this helped me tremendously in the early years of my practice when the amplitude of the cycles you know, of ease and difficulty were very large. Over time, for many, the amplitude of the of the waves gets less, at least for sometimes. But back then, they were real. I was re- either tremendously exhilarated, or in the depths of depression. And I would kind of be swinging from one to the other. And I was struggling to find a way just to hold it, to hold those massive mood swings. And I remember I was walking around, I was doing walking meditation in the Burmese Vihara in Bodh Gaya where I was staying. And I remember telling myself, Joseph, just sit and walk. That's your job. Sit and walk, sit and walk, sit and walk. Let the Dharma take care of the rest. And it was just that kind of an inner gesture of surrender, which was tremendously helpful. I knew what I had to do. And I realized that in the sitting and the walking, I'd go through all kinds of ups and downs and changes and feeling good and not feeling good. Just sit and walk, sit and walk, sit and walk, sit and walk, sit and walk. Surrender to it all. And it was very freeing. I stopped trying to figure it out. That was a big relief. The quality of faith, the quality of devotion, is tremendously onward leading. It leads us onward even to full liberation. Just this quality of faith. And again, from the text, the Buddha used an example he said, and the Buddha was often likened to a herdsman, you know, kind of caring for a herd of cattle. 
He said it's like a good herdsman. He brings a herd of cattle to the stream, and they have to ford the stream. And at first, the strong bulls and cows go across, and there's no problem. And then, I don't know what they're called after a year or two, but the yearlings, or two yearlings, you know, they cross, and there's not so much problem for them. And then the young calves go across, and they're a little wobbly and shaky, but they make it to the other side. And then even the newborn calves, just by following the sound of their mother, hearing the sound of their mother, following the sound, they make it across safely. And that's likened to people just with that quality of faith. Faith in the Buddha's enlightenment, faith in the possibility of awakening. Just that faith is enough to actually bring us to that place of freedom. So it is a tremendously beautiful and powerful quality in us. So what are the obstacles? You know, what are the difficulties in developing this? Developing faith in our lives? What has happened to this magical gem you know, that settles all impurities? There are many ways we could talk about it, but the key to understanding what hinders faith or hinders our confidence is the deep-rooted attachment to what is pleasant and avoidance or aversion to what is unpleasant. Why? Because it's these two forces which keep us in struggle with the present moment. If we were accepting of the pleasant and accepting of the unpleasant, there would be no problem. But we get attached here and we push away there, and so that keeps us in a place of struggle. When we try to hold on to something, or when we try to recreate an experience, or when we try to avoid something, we lose that sense of trust in the moment. There's a haiku poem, I don't know whether, it's one of Michelle's favorites, so I don't know that she mentioned it in the first six weeks, but it really expresses this. Uh, It's a Japanese haiku, which says, simply trust, don't the leaves flutter down just like that. You know, and you could, of course, most of the leaves are gone by now, but, you know, in the last weeks, simply trust, don't the leaves flutter down just like that. Not struggling, you know, in the letting go. So faith, devotion, confidence, trust, this is the first of the spiritual faculties. But it also needs to be in balance with the last of these spiritual powers, and that is wisdom. There are many aspects, of course, of wisdom. But the one I'd like to talk just briefly about is expressed in one line of the Buddhist teachings, and it sums up everything that we're doing here. 
nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. The Buddha said, whoever has heard this one line has heard all of the teachings. And whoever puts this one line into practice has practiced all of the teachings. So what is it that we do cling to as I or mine? Where do we create the sense of self? We see it so clearly in our practice. And this is what Milarepa was talking about. We don't need books. It's all right here. When we look within our own minds, we can see in our experience how we take body sensations to be I or mine. There's a certain sensation in the knee or the back maybe a pressure or tightness or heat. And so quickly the mind goes from the immediacy of knowing that sensation to the concept knee. And we don't stop there. We then build on that concept. Knee, my knee. And then we have all kinds of reactions in the mind following the build-up of those concepts. I like this. I don't like it. You know, will I be able to move again? And all the time, there is no I or mine there at all. Really, there's not even a knee there. Is there any sensation called knee? No. The sensations that we're feeling or pressure, or tightness, or burning, that's what the actual experience is. And it's interesting because we generally don't lay claim to pressure as being mine. We don't say my pressure. (laughs) This I or mine comes in through some concept that we're creating about it. So we see it over and over again in the simple experience of bodily sensations. We see it in our experience of thoughts. We claim thoughts as being mine, as being self. I'm thinking. Between one step and the next in the walking meditation, how many different mind worlds can be created that we get lost in? It's really astounding. (laughs) We're living in this realm of thought proliferation. We get lost in these thoughts. We get distracted in them. We become identified with them. We take them to be mine or self. And then we feel constricted. We feel contracted. We feel as if we're in a prison. In the light of awareness, we could see all thoughts as being inherently insubstantial. In the light of awareness, all thoughts, regardless of the content, doesn't matter, it can be the most frightening content, it can be the most glorious content, in the light of awareness, all thoughts self-liberate. They're there, and then they're gone. 
it is quite astounding that we give over and over again so much power to these thoughts. Thoughts have no roots. They have no home. They don't belong to us. So one exercise which I've suggested before, and maybe in the next sitting you could just try it, or in the walking. Treat every thought that comes, that arises in the mind, as if it's coming from the person next to you. <laughs> and just see the difference in how you'll relate to the thought. You know, instead of claiming it as being mine, this is as a temporary measure, think of it as being theirs. <laughs> it might just loosen this attachment a little bit, loosen this sense of identification, of claiming it. We identify with emotions. It's another thing we take to be I or mine. I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm lonely, I'm excited. And then we go even more than that. We then build the superstructure, this skyscraper of self even higher in the moment. I'm an angry person. I'm a happy person. I'm a this kind of person. We're solidifying the sense of self. We're building this skyscraper on top of a simple moment's experience. It's anger that angers. It's love that loves. Each emotion is doing its own thing. But the conditioning is so strong to understand it as being self, as being I. We identify with consciousness. We identify with awareness itself even when we might begin to see the impermanence of all these other things, the sensations and thoughts and emotions, and we get glimpses at least that they're not I, they're not self, they're not rooted anyplace. It's very easy to stay contracted in the identification with the knowing, creating a sense of observer or witness. Well, I'm the one who's knowing all of these things. And that's why I've suggested at different times just relanguaging it and putting it into the passive voice. The breath being known, a sound being known. In, a, in walking, the sensation of a movement being known. Because it takes the I out of it. It's just in a moment, something being known. That's all that's happening. With attention with interest, with the quality of faith, of confidence, becomes possible to recognize, to explore the nature of this awareness itself. What is it? You know, it's this incredible mystery. We could call it the nature of awareness or innate wakefulness or the empty nature of mind, whatever phrases you like. It's an amazingly mysterious happening. And it's revealing itself in every moment's experience. It's not something we have to go look for. 
in a step, in a breath, in hearing a sound, spontaneously and immediately these things are known. Well, known by what? So this is something to really be in, you know, and to be exploring the nature of how this is happening, because this is our life. But as soon as we identify with awareness, as soon as we lay claim to it, I'm the one who's knowing, in that moment, the innate clarity of it is obscured. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. So can we simply settle back into this flow of experience, this flow of appearance, this flow of empty phenomena, simply settling back moment after moment, things are being known, there's nothing more to do. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. This practice and realization of selflessness or emptiness of self, this is the great transforming wisdom of the Dharma. So faith in the Buddha's awakening and confidence in the experience of awakening, confidence in the path of dharma, is what fuels and supports and sustains our right effort and practice. Wisdom shows us the essential emptiness of it all, the transparency of it all. And more than 2,500 years ago, the Buddha set this wheel of the dharma in motion And we here in our practice are continuing to turn that wheel. That's the essence of our practice here. As we cultivate and ripen it, these factors of wisdom and faith come together. They, They mature and they ripen in a way that's described very beautifully and I think very accurately by T.S. Eliot in a few lines of the four quartets. He really captured in these lines this union of faith and wisdom. He wrote of a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Those last two lines are actually a quotation from St. Julian of Norwich, which he incorporated in his poem. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well.
we rest in that great faith. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.